Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, tonight, we are just so excited to be hosting Christopher Bolin um, with his brand new and widely acclaimed first novel, Lightning People. Um, as most of you probably already know, uh, Christopher is a writer, editor, and critic, um, the former editor-in-chief um, at Interview uh, and currently editor-at-large, um, also at Interview. Um, and this novel, you know, is just incredibly impressive. I hesitate to use that word because it's thrown around all the time with debuts. Um, but debut or not, uh, it's just, um, as the uh, Publishers Weekly put it, I really like this quote, uh, demonstrates the vigor and audacity of a formidable new voice. Um, so please help me welcome Christopher Bolin. I'm going to ask, can I raise this or... Maybe short. If we can figure it out. Or, you know what? Maybe it's best not to try. <laughs> Which is what I thought about writing this book for a long time. <laughs> uh, Sorry about that. I no, it's fine. This is perfect. Um, that's why there aren't a lot of tall writers. But uh, Well, thank you for coming. And thank you, Skylight Books, for having me. Um, I don't know where to begin, except at the beginning, which is what I'm going to start by reading, the prologue. Um, but I didn't actually start out trying to write such a big book, um, or such a long book, for those <laughs> who don't like this, but I, uh, <laughs> I did start out trying to write a book about New York, and that's uh, sort of what it became, ultimately, uh, more and more uh, about New York. And I think... Uh, I don't know. It's it's funny to me because uh, there must be there are wonderful books about LA. There are wonderful books about New York. But I felt like in the last decade there weren't so many great books that I was seeing um, about the city that I was living in since 1996. So part of me uh, began this project, this process, trying to record uh, something of the feeling and temperament of the last 10 years, which is why when I read the prologue. Um, maybe you'll get a sense of what I had in mind. This is the prologue of the book. We had lightning strikes all summer, but no blackouts. Through May and June, lightning came without rain, rising out of New Jersey like a laser concert and slicing east and white tracers through Manhattan. Storms were a huge attraction for those of us who moved here from the Midwest. We'd climb up to the rooftops as ritual to watch them roll in from the west, 
feeling momentarily connected to the cereal grain prairies and humid river valleys they worked so desperately to escape. For a long time we did this without worry or risk. After all, in the years when we were still new to the city, rooftops served as our 24-hour parks. There were our unpleased drug layers, our water tower jungle gyms, our loveness for random hookups with enough of a romantic panorama not to feel ashamed when groping through underwear near a bed of moldering trash. Every building had one junk with cables and rusted lawn furniture and billion dollar views. For many years we were drunk and happy, loitering on these hot tar gardens, adding our slender bodies to the skyline. The storms, however, were different. They were a private matter, a religion best observed alone, and maybe only for the Midwesterners, because they were the ones who were killed. First it happened to a 23-year-old from St. Louis on a rooftop on Broom Street, then to a 27-year-old from Indiana on a six-floor tenement on the Lower East Side. Another lightning death occurred a few weeks later, also to a Midwesterner. The victims were all young men and women who had moved to the city within the last few years, scrounging for jobs or fame. And they had all been struck by a single bolt that ripped the shoes off their feet and melted the coins in their pockets. Although the newspapers never bothered to draw more than a cursory connection, each victim was described as happy or ambitious or starting to make a real home in New York. I don't know why the weather would take her, one grieving mother was quoted as saying. You expect murders or burglaries, but you don't think your daughter is going to be killed by lightning in the middle of Manhattan. It makes no sense. Most people will tell you that such deaths don't make sense. Lightning strikes contain all the inexplicable characteristics of coincidence. No reason, just a dice roll, like a tornado rummaging through one house and leaving the next unbothered. Then there are tougher cynics like Dell, who says that because crime is down, New York has to find creative ways to stay dangerous. But I know the real explanation for these events. There is one for those who are willing to listen. The answer lies in the landscape itself. The Manhattan skyline has changed since I moved here from Cincinnati at the age of 18. What no one seems willing to mention is that before the World Trade Center fell, lightning rarely struck any parts of Manhattan other than the towers themselves, as they were the highest conductors in the city. But they are gone now, and we have taken their place, little conductors in our tight jeans and unwashed t-shirts, easy targets in a city that was supposed to hide us. Tonight I poured whiskey into two glass tumblers and watched snow fall across the television screen. Outside, ta taxis sped south toward the bridges, and Dell and I kissed on the bed as close as we could to the air conditioning. Her tongue was dry and her neck heavy, our faces blue in the television light. After she smoked her last cigarette, we took our clothes off. We did not have sex. We were nervous, and Dell was tired. Get the lights, will you, she said as she reached over and set the alarm clock for 8 a.m. I thought the final moments of our single life might turn us into feral sex partners, but we stuck to our routine. Tomorrow morning we are getting married at City Hall. I wish I could say that I am marrying Delphine Kisavos, a beautiful Greek woman with large black hair and bad smoking habit only out of love. That we bumped into each other on 7th Street near Tompkins Square Park eight months ago and clinging to each other's arms and sentences are about to spend $30 for a two minute ceremony. That also isn't the correct explanation of events. It's just the easiest story to tell. Many of us came to New York to get away from the stories of our childhoods, hoping here they would no longer apply. For a long time, I thought I could shake the predictions told to me about my family, the ones my mother raised me on in a darkened house in Cincinnati, 
that took each death as evidence, each year as a clue. There is a pattern that runs through the generations, a conspiracy in the bloodstream that kills with perfect timing. For many years, I thought nothing from back there could find me. Those stories could be wrong, but they could also be devastatingly correct. If I am right, I won't live to see our first anniversary. For a while, I was very young here and didn't need to give in to the paranoia. I remember a lot of first days in this city. How a morning could lead to a fist fight with a homeless woman, a request by a model scout on Broadway to come into the agency for pictures, an offer, by a part -time, an offer of a part-time job cater waiting for a group of Chinese diplomats, or a four milligram clonopin shared by a failed child actor hiding from Hollywood before riding bicycles around an empty loft in Tribeca until our minds became unglued at dawn. All of those first shiny details told us that we had gotten very far from where we started and that there was good reason to expect more. I still go up to the rooftops. We still look at the storms dragging in from the west. At some point, we stop thinking of our time here as an open story that would only end well. Lightning doesn't strike the same place twice until it does. Behind every senseless tragedy, there is a careful logic. At some point, the weather changed when no one was looking, and we were no longer so young in New York. I mean, New York's also a fun place. I didn't want to just make it sound so, so awful. But um, maybe as a background, uh, I think I was trying, that's a, I know it sounds a bit of a tone poem, but I think I was trying to describe a mood in the city, uh, not so much with 9-11, but in the years after it. Um, and I think that was due to the fact that I think there was just so much paranoia um, and so many sour dreams going on uh, with the people who were living there, especially the people who had come there in search of sort of the opposite kind of um, urban state, sort of paradise. So that starts the book. And uh, as, you, as you might have told him, it starts with a wedding. Um, which is not an uncommon way to begin or end books. There's, you know, weddings being what ties communities together. But uh, already within this one, there is uh, something undercutting that sort of sense of joy, which is, of course, uh, the wife desperately wants to get a green card to stay in the country. Um, so already at that happy moment at City Hall, there's something uh, rather amiss. Uh, uh, in, in the matrimonial state. Um, Lightning People, I think the book uh, turned out to be something of, of a character study of many different characters and parts. Um, I think that might be due to the fact in this, for, for describing New York, I felt that I couldn't really do it anymore accessing a certain neighborhood or a group of people or even an age. Uh, so I kind of felt like I had to, to, to fill this city up with very, very different kinds of people um, who are all rather kind of sort of interconnected to each other, but um, coming kind of from very different points of view. And of course, when someone gets married, so the main character marries this Greek woman, Del, uh, she uh, of course, doesn't you know come out of thin air. She also, you know, had uh, past loves and people who she was going to uh, be with for the rest of her life. 
Um, and so this part that I'm going to read describes a very weird moment in which uh, her ex-boyfriend, this is, sometimes this sounds like an episode of Santa Barbara that my sister watched in the 80s, so describing <laughs> the way all these people came in, but uh, the, the, Del goes over to sort of to, to, to talk to her ex-boyfriend Raj to tell him that she got married, which is um, a somewhat immature thing to do, I suppose, but uh, she kind of felt like she was closing the door on him, on him and it. He happens to be the brother of her best friend. They went to Columbia together. Um, in the book. So Raj is uh, the boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend, and he is a photographer and a bit of a depressive. Um, so this is right after uh, he finds out, he, he gets a, a call from Dell or a, a visit from Dell and she tells him the truth that she got married. He guesses correctly, of course, that she got married for a green card, although she was not willing to admit that in the scene. Um, Okay. Once Raj traveled the world. Call Vienna. He was there two days ago. Tried to reach him in Berlin. He just left. He'd been on a stopover in Shanghai. Ten hours of airport shopping and a nap in the passenger's lounge and then a small turbojet over the Himalayas where the gas mask fell from the ceiling and every tooth filling jittered. But no one panicked because they were all staring down at the face of Mount Everest. He hit Sao Paulo, the Amalfi Coast, home for two days, then Dubrovnik, Bahrain. Back home as a pit stop to pay the electric bill before Vancouver, onto Fairbanks, skirting over the cocaine line straits into Russia. Raj had become a photographer, he so often thought, from a love of stillness. Faces, trees, dust, whatever the camera caught, it held. But in supreme artistic irony, the job of photography offered few similarities with the final product. His 20s had been spent in constant mule-back motion, lugging his equipment all over town, wheezing up five flights of stairs for an assignment to shoot three piano prodigies in a queen's living room, hanging over a ledge of a roof to snap a suicide from the vantage point where the mother of four, now splayed under a nylon tarp on 72nd Street, lost her balance on purpose. Then the world came calling, bigger tragedies, better heartbreaks, prettier views. He shot for an extravagant travel magazine, in a human interest periodical, carting his camera all over the globe, sweeping through exotic locales on two-day timetables, shooting here children holding glue bottles caked in snot, and there a waterfall descending into the mist. Raj had devoted all of his muscles to freezing images until his 30th birthday, when his muscles froze, his agent screamed, and he stopped. Wow, I'm 35. I think I wrote this when I was 30, which that seemed very old to me at the time. Uh, <laughs> In the morning of his 30th birthday, three years before he started dating Dell, he sat on the mattress with a box of granola, a pint of skim milk, and a plastic spoon. Two days later, he could be found in practically the same position, the milk sour, the cereal stale, and the answering machine blinking on overdrive. He shook uncontrollably at the thought of boarding a plane. He refused to let go of the spoon in his hand. He refused to let the open window wipe the dust from the air. He sat in the frame of his bed, matted with his own green quilt. He had taken his picture, and there he hung in his apartment indefinitely. On day two, the door opened, the front door opened, and feet stomped worryingly down the hallway. He was discovered by his then 26-year-old sister, who wore a red sari layered around her shoulders, and white denim pants flared like yacht sails at the ankles. 
She walked into the studio, at first overtaken with the smell of rotting dairy, went directly to the window where she freed the trapped air and lost a fight with the metal blinds that refused to gather, and screamed when she turned to find her older brother lying as still as death in his bed. Maddie wrestled the utensil from his grip, threw a glass of cold water on his face. She admitted later that she had always wanted to do that to someone and couldn't resist the opportunity. And then, with a corrective smile, wished him a belated happy birthday. She opened the greeting card envelope, still wet from her tongue, and placed the card in his hands. Then she blew up a purple balloon and tossed it wobbling into the air. Raj, she sighed from the edge of the bed. This can't be a response to turning 30. Tell me there's a better reason for the crack-up. I mean, you were never really that fun the last decade anyway, so this can't be some fear about your youth slipping away. I've decided... They both waited, but he couldn't finish the sentence. Decided? To urinate in your own sheets? Did you get my message? I've been calling you for two days. I finally got a hold of your agent so I could reach you wherever the hell you were on assignment, and she said you never showed. It's not Raj, I said. She must have disagreed because she hung up. I was thinking about crowds, he managed through a dehydrated tongue. Whole packs of people all together until they spread out like a sea. Ugh. She actually said ugh. Maddie was all for the romance of mental breakdowns, but not when it involved her own bloodline. She threw the cereal in the trash, ran a shower from her brother, and touched up her makeup in the reflection of a picture glass, behind which a line of soldiers cut a human curtain across Red Square. By the time Raj returned to the land of the living, or at least dressed the part, she promised never to mention the birthday granola incident again. Raj didn't mention it either. But after that birthday, he stayed in more. He became less visible. He kept to his studio as much as he could, and the laugh lines around his mouth began to diminish. He dated Dell from the comfortable reaches of the set of broken armchairs and let her go without a single romantic chase down the stairs. Now at 35, he watched summer mornings fade into great afternoons without one stepping foot outside his apartment. In the past week, he had managed to go four days without leaving the building. When Dell had shown up that evening, he had kissed her in part because he was ready to touch the world again. When they were together, Dell asked more than once why he had never taken her picture. And in fact, in all the portfolios that lined his shelf, in the sealed canisters of film yet to be developed, and in the stacks of mustard Polaroid boxes, he did not possess a single photograph of Del Delphine Kusavos. He tried to explain, I no longer take photographs of things that I find beautiful, not anymore. She started sarcastically piling her hair on top of her head while uh, posing to judge her beauty in the mirror. You took one of Maddie's, she replied. I saw it hanging in her bedroom. Wait until she hears you don't find her beautiful. Please don't use my sister against me. Sorry we aren't all La Corbusier conference rooms. You must be disappointed. Some of us have a little sun damage. A few of us even breathe. He had shot Maddie because he knew the geography of her face as intimately as the bend in the West Side Highway outside his window. Underneath the lift gloss and bronzing cream. Maddie was still the sister who had slept in the bunk above his own as a child before they graduate to separate rooms. Their parents, a white reed-thin mother and a chubby Indian father, splashed in body, black body hair. From these polar opposites, the two had come, and as kids, each had prayed with religious fervor to grow in opposite genetic directions. But puberty failed prayers. Raj had taken his mother's skinny frame along with her electric blue eyes, while Maddie, refusing to give in to the inevitable, banished herself in tight stonewashed jeans and compulsively tear, tore out her eyebrows with tweezers, had inherited the thicker bones of the paternal proclivity to sprout dense black hair along her forearms. They were two wobbly melting pots molded by a couple who should never have married and who crashed their progeny against each other whenever possible, a cheaper alternative to smashing their set of kitchen plates. 
A very pregnant Vicky Birch Singh had delighted in the exotic foreignness of her, hus her termed husband when she agreed to let him pick out the firstborn's name by flipping pages at random in the Guru Granth Sahib to the first letter of the first word of the first hymn according to Sikh custom. R made its chance monumental trek to Rajveer. But three years later, the kiln had cooled in the Birch Singh household. More disillusioned mother smoking two pats of Newports per day and secretly attending Bible meetings at Southern Crossroads Gateway House, stuck to her guns in Birch family tradition, naming her second baby Madeline. Screw your guru, Grant, she wailed an hour before bringing her daughter into the world. Let this kid have a chance of uh, fitting in. Now get her out of me or I'll drive to the hospital myself. Raja Maddy had been raised in a pink aluminum sided household of warring religions. Raja's red black hair descending inch by inch free of scissors or razors, wrapped in bund in the stiff white folds of a miniature Sikh turban. His grade school classmates nicknamed him the Turbinator, spraying him with invisible machine gun fire in the stone corridors of PS 33, offing the enemy Arab boy he denied being in class assignments on cultural heritage. When faced with 21 reports on the Irish potato famine, the Cuban exile experience, or the Yuletide meaning of dreidel, the verdant Punjabi territory between the Indus and Yamuna rivers, with its lush gardens and flowering crops, might as well have existed in Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, Maddie, heavier in body but lighter in psychological load, wore plastic jelly shoes and Bermuda shorts and permed her hair according to the statutes of Sassy and 17. Taking him by the arm on the first day of each school year with the sun lifting above the singed Fort Lauderdale palms, she acted as his American ambassador, his crop top liberator to the bleached blondes, freckled noses, and unmanageable cowlicks of late summer playground. Maddie had tried, how much can an 11 year old do to calm international hostilities? But there were two kinds of headgear worn at PS 33. Those bought at Hat Hut at the Palatial Gardens Mall, and his worn at all times, indoors and outdoor, for devotion and purity which hid hair that no longer was, was, no, was longer than any brush by a seven-year-old girl. The day his mother finally kicked his father out for being a lazy, emotionally inadequate, non-Jesus freak, she picked him up from school in her rusted rabbit convertible and threw down $10 at the closest barber shop to get his hair cut. Cut it off, she told the barber as tears welled her eyes and her fingers fumbled over the cigarette lighter. The shorter the better, real normal. But miss, the barber, the barber had said nervously, dipping a comb in a vat of amniotic blue gel, as if afraid he were about to commit a divine transgression. Are you sure? Of course I'm fucking sure. I'm his mother. Then, through an eruption of nicotine smoke and tears, she patted Roger's shoulder as he felt the cold scissor tips on the back of his neck. You want something fun? You can have whatever cut you want. Okay, that was a bit longer than I'd anticipated reading, but... Um, as he, I don't know, I felt like it was very important for me to, to show the backstories of these characters um, in New York because much of the book, as much of the city that I have been living in is, is kind of about escaping the past um, of where you came from. Uh, which, which becomes a big theme in the book. The main character, Joseph, trying to escape uh, a past hinted about at the in that prologue I wrote, um, only to find that the past kind of sneaks up and takes a hold of him and something that he can't outrun uh, or bring back, which is something that uh, doesn't happen too often uh, in in New York. I think maybe LA too. I don't know. I don't want to speak for you, but uh, which is so eager at at trying to dismiss any sort of past 
uh, for some sort of constant, happy present that we live in. Um, so it was kind of a challenge and an excitement to try to get someone who uh, had to deal with that history that, uh, that he was running away from for so long. And of course, to be, tr to be fair to New York tradition, there's always a completely different kind of character who's also an actor, as Joseph is. His name is William in this book. And um, he's maybe the most New York character in that he's probably uh, the most uh, sort of ethically or morally questionable character, or m most selfish, or, you know, whatever you want to believe. Um, he also is, is sort of on, you know, survival mode. He's uh, married a rich woman who's in the process of divorcing him or separated, and he's sort of living not so much on his acting skills as uh, trying to... Someone described him as a petty thief in, the, in a review, which I never realized he was, but he actually is selling her stuff and pawning it slowly, <laughs> which I guess is stealing. It's, um, but so he, you know, is in true actor form, wants to leave New York as soon as possible and move to Los Angeles. For some reason in this book, everyone's always constantly trying to leave New York. Um, so this one was coming your way, I guess. But uh, so he decides he has this uh, decision to throw a big party for himself, uh, which is you know, extreme narcissism, and, and, and charge people to come so that he can pay for himself to get across uh, to, to Los Angeles. Um, and and I, there's, I think also within the New York novel, there's also um, people who have written parties so well in books, which is, I think, like sex, one of the hardest things to write. Um, it's really hard to write about people having a good time. It's much easier, as you've seen in the beginning of the book, to show that people are having a terrible time and miserable and alone. <laughs> but uh, I tried. I did my best. And um, these people aren't 20 anymore. Uh, so I don't think, you know, it's supposed to be tinged with a little bit of, of misery to it. But anyway, this is a scene um, of William. I'm going to skip out the middle because there's also a fight that happens um, in it, but of William trying to turn the darkness of leaving New York into a good time and make money in the process. Um, okay. Enter the light. Every decent party needed a theme. This had always been William's party throwing ethos. He spent hours of this afternoon at a going out of business lighting store on Lower Broadway, digging through bins and buying back stock of every imaginable life source that had ever been factored out of Taiwan. Strands of white Christmas bulbs, blinking yellow duck bulbs, chili pepper bulbs, grape cluster bulbs, bulbs in the shape of Chinese takeout boxes, the Virgin Mary jumping salmon, disco balls, the novelty incandescent balls with dick face written across the upside down foreheads. He had also bought a car cardboard Klieg light and a fiber optic bouquet that lit up like a sea anemone. He plugged power strips into outlets of his apartment and wove a black spider web throughout the living room, hooking cords around shelf ledges, door frames, sprinkler pipes, and sofa legs. That left only pressing the switch and the entire apartment shone like one great happy ball of fire that would eat through sunglasses and radiate spleens. It was like staying inside the flame of the Statue of Liberty, waving goodbye to the confused, uninvited tourists galvanized around her feet. At seven, he opened the door for beer delivery, directing the carts into the kitchen. At eight, he shaved and applied beeswax to his hair and cologne to his neck. 
and then proceeded in his underwear to empty the medicine cabinet of the prescription pill bottles, hiding them in a pair of boots in the bedroom closet. Even close friends become impertinent thieves in the presence of pill bottles. Jennifer, that's his wife, had been prescribed the mostly the mellow stuff, although William had already rated the single exception, her long-inspired bottle of Ritalin. He now found only a few bitten-off crescent moons at the bottom of the bottle, slipped one remnant into his mouth, and gulped it down with a palm of sink water. First he dressed in a houndstooth jacket, but decided against that bit of cocktail formality. This is his last party in New York. He might as well dress for spills. Anyway, even with the air conditioning cranked on high, the lights were slowly roasting the room. Instead, William wore a black t-shirt emblazoned in the front with a demon face of Klaus, Kowski, uh, of Klaus Kinski and Nosferatu. He loved this shirt. Like an uglier friend, it made his own features stand out by comparison. Um, okay, so the party is a success at first. It does, you know, um, having a good time. Uh, the, bulb, the strand of bulbs wrapping around the room forced everyone into the center, offering few corners for the less communicative and uptight to isolate themselves. Um, he sort of goes through this whole feeling at the party of having, you know, of, of feeling like things are in control, that he can he can take over uh, any environment, that it's sort of a, a wonderful celebration of goodbye. Uh, unfortunately, Joseph and Dell arrive, um, which sends him into a bit of a tailspin because he's extraordinarily jealous of his fellow actor for, you know, barely getting better parts than he is, and they get into an argument. And then I'm just going to show you how even a good party can end in um, <laughs> a terrible, a terrible end. Um, William staggered into the kitchen and filled a glass with water. He, list, he, listed, uh, he listened to a rant about American politics between two British guys he didn't recognize while bringing the glass to his lips. William could feel hives swelling around his Adam apple and resisted the urge to scratch. He's extraordinarily intoxicated by this point. A chill ran through him and, gla and a glass dropped into the sink where it cracked against the faucet. He wobbled back into the party. It had grown smaller in the last half hour, subtracting into couples that leaned against the walls. He wanted to kick everyone out, but it was already late and the end would come soon. The music was blasting in and out like someone was toying with the knob. Jesse punched him on the shoulder and said goodbye. Stay just for a bit longer, William pleaded with his eyes shut. He steadied himself against Jesse's arm. I don't feel well. Something's not right. Something hasn't been right for a while. You're wasted. It's 2.30. Roll with it. The trick is to think about something else. Think of a story, the first thing that comes to your head. William tried to erase the shame he felt for the fight with Joseph. Tomorrow he would call him and apologize. He would beg forgiveness. He would send Del flowers. Not because there was no truth in what he had said, but because there was no reason to leave the bruised memory of himself behind. He focused his thoughts on the first thing he could imagine, a sunken family room with a television set blaring through the Illinois sunlight. Okay, a story. That's right, tell me, Jesse coked. I'm listening. Don't worry about anything else. Did I ever tell you when I was a kid, all I did one summer was watch HBO? He could hear people pushing around him quietly and knew they must think him far too gone to bother with a goodbye. He didn't care. 
I'd sit at our dark basement on the warmest days while every other kid was outside enjoying the weather, making guns out of lawn sprinklers and throwing rocks at the cheapest cars. I'd be 10 inches from the TV screen, shivering in central air, and watching any movie, any movie that came on. Really, the shittiest teen flicks and romantic comedies. They'd eventually repeat, and I'd sit there memorizing the dialogue of all the parts until I got them perfect. And then when my parents called me up for dinner, I'd try those lines on them. William didn't open his eyes. He was afraid his vision would scramble. He wanted to be the man he was three hours earlier. That's it, Jesse encouraged kindly, holding onto his shoulders. How did your parents react? I didn't care what my parents were talking about. I put in an, I don't think love is going to save you from getting out of this amusement park alive. Or how can you watch every man walk out on you and not wonder if maybe you're the problem? The weird thing was, my parents would just, this is a really good question. Uh, my parents would just nod and go quiet for a minute over their plates, like they were really considering what I said, weighing it for some insight to their failed paving company or the neighbor's escalating divorce battle. Once I told my mother, if you don't see what the whole town wants you dead and try to do something about it, tomorrow you'll wake up next to someone who only wants to rip your heart out. Telling the story was helping him. It was keeping him from passing out. It was cutting through the clouded thoughts. How did she take that? She began to cry. Spit burst from his lips. He started laughing hard and voluntarily snorting, even though he didn't find what he was saying to be the least bit funny. His knees buckled, and suddenly the pressure of the light stopped beating against his eyelids. The music skidded to a silence. William opened his eyes, and the living room was black. A long collective awe passed through the mouths of the few guests that remained. We blew a fuse, Jesse said, lifting William's chin. But already he could hear other voices saying, brown out, then no, look out the window, the whole city's gone. William took Jesse's hand and kept going with the story. He wanted to get out one apology before he lost consciousness. Electrical failures would have to wait. Manhattan would have to remain in the dark until he uttered one proper apology. One honest appeal for forgiveness that would stand in for all the others. Okay, story time's over, Jesse replied with a nervous voice. We have an emergency. Seriously, man, get it together. Where are the stairs? Matches and lighters began to crack the blackness. Bodies fumbled over chairs to locate jackets and purses, and the windows were open to let in sirens and screams coming from the street. Sometimes I think about calling them and saying that, it was none of, that none of what I said was meant for them. It had nothing to do with their lives. They were headed for divorce court no matter what, what I was saying. I mean, my poor mother, did she really think that all of Breeze Falls, Illinois, really wanted her dead? Even her own husband, his laughing returned in harder waves, exploding up his windpipe from his stomach and out through his nostrils. As he bent over, wheezing out laughter uncontrollably, gasping for air, his entire body shook with painful joy. He clenched his hands around his stomach like he might throw up. Wait, it gets worse. No one had seen her enter the apartment, and if they had, most would not have been able to identify her. They would have taken her for a late arrival, stuck on the 12th floor of a party in its death throes. She wore a silver charm bracelet that caught the match light and dirty canvas sneakers that tracked beer across the rug. She held the receipt from a cab that had dropped her off in front of the building. She did not need to grope through the dark. She knew the layout of the apartment. Her hand slid along an empty shelf of missing curios as she passed. William slowly regained his composure. He tried to tuck his t-shirt into his pants, breathing evenly through his nose. He was all right. He, was going, he wasn't going to lose consciousness. He could resolve whatever catastrophe he had caused with a simple apology in the morning. Nothing could ever get so broken that it couldn't be fixed. Then he turned and saw the face of a woman unspeakably familiar to him. 
Her eyes were wet as they stared into his. He wiped his mouth with the back of his fist, and it took him a half a second to connect this comforting face with her name. And in that half second, which felt like a piece of eternity breaking off from its rock face, the impulse of his body moved to embrace her as his brain caught up and stopped him from reaching out. She stared at him as he turned pale, the sweat shining in his blistered face and his lips dotted in white spit. He could hear a fire door opening on the outer hallway and the echoes of feet descending the first of twelve flights down. She said a word so softly it sounded less like an insult than a matter of classification. Animal, Jennifer whispered, almost as she had said, don't worry, or I love you, or you're safe. That's his wife who comes back to find that he's selling all of her stuff and selling her out. Um, there are so many parts of this book that I actually wanted to read, but I, I can't because there's a lot of uh, surprises. Uh, it's not really a thriller, but there's a lot of twists and turns that would be ruined if I were to, to read you some of my favorite parts. Um, so maybe I'll leave it there. That seems like a lot. Um, but if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. That party scene reminded me of something like uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's with uh, Otter and Heffern. Yeah. I had a character part, and she was a phony, and she's trying to be a big, high-class New York society. Mm -hmm. And uh, I lived in New York for 20 years. I know about, you know, and it was a, that was a fantastic film. And the party scene was great. Yeah, you know, I... Um I like the book so much better than the film because I think that Audrey Hepburn is sort of the opposite of the the character in the book. I mean, it is the sort of polar opposite. So, the uh, the book is to me one of the best New York novels that I can think of. I'm kind of disagree with you on the movie so much, but I do like that scene where they're at the party and she uses the stair the fire escape up and down. Which leads to the point that there's only so many ways to do a party scene, I guess, in New York. <laughs> Due to limited spacing, it, it, yeah. Which is why I used rooftops, I guess, at the beginning. It seems like the last, the last resort. Um, yeah. Why, um, how did you come up with the concept of the lightning and the lightning rods? Oh, okay. Um, I did not, for the most part, except for one or two cases, um, which is not going to be an answered prayers like thing, speaking of Truman Capote. Um, I didn't really use characters I knew in New York, um, for the most part, because I was afraid of the, the fallout of that. Uh, however, sadly, because that did actually happen, that the lightning uh, conductors, or the World Trade Center was the highest uh, conductor for downtown New York. And so when that fell, uh, lightning had become an erratic kind of force and sadly I was friends with these people in this band gang gang dance and there was a which is a kind of a New York band and one of their band members was on a rooftop in 2002 and was struck by lightning um, which was kind of connected to the fact that it was, it was in Chinatown and was uh, to the fact that the World Trade Center was gone. So I liked this idea. I mean, I, it, was a, it was a terrible thing, but I was interested in this idea that there are um, the results and, and to, to, to events that we don't even realize, but are, you know, once you trace them back, um, you can see, you can see the, the, the what happened. And um, that kind of is a, a structure of the book in many ways, too, because there's a lot of uh, elements of conspiracy and paranoia throughout the book. In fact, there's a whole section on a conspiracy uh, meeting where the main character 
begins a relationship with someone that he meets at this uh, underground conspiracy uh, theory meeting. Um, but uh, but yeah, but so sadly that is true. The, and I don't know uh, if they've ever fixed that. I'm sure that they have uh, come up with. That would be interesting. Yeah. So did that person live? No. No, he died. He did. Yeah. I just finished reading a book about a guy who got struck by lightning twice. Oh really? Yeah. He became like an intuitive. So. Oh really? Yeah. No. Sadly, he died. He died in uh, 2002. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> But yes, but that, so that was kind of based on an experience of someone I, I knew to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, it is. It is. It is I guess the the, the uh, Empire State Building is the the high, is, the, is the conductor for Midtown. Yeah. feeling of how it was going to end up, which surprisingly stayed somewhat true to the the, the initial. Uh, I didn't ever make an outline, but I did have one, sort of a vague one in my head. Uh, that said, there was an, a, a number of ways to answer that. There's a whole section with of the main character, Joseph, about his family and his past, and flashbacks to a certain extent to that uh, history which initially I had written in the first person and changed to third person. So there was a lot of uh, restructuring with the voice. The, the New York part was always written in the third person. And the prologue, yes, was always in the first. But that was something that I played around with and changed. And I have to say, I was surprised by how much of a character novel it became. I thought it, I could get away with being a little bit cooler. Um, like maybe some of my idols writers uh, could do, but in in fact, I turned out to be quite much more of a um, a character writer. It just felt that the, what I needed to to make the plot work. So, um, idol writers like. Well, I mean, I just feel like there's a lot, there are a lot of great writers, like from Joan Didion, for example, um, who can write in a much like cleaner and cooler style. Uh, and cooler, I just don't mean. Hip, I mean, like a, a bit of a removed tone, uh, which I didn't find useful for me uh, in terms of, of finding a style. Um, so, but I, I also find that once you start writing these characters, when you get a, at least a few sentences in of dialogue or a few descriptions in, you can kind of feel them out pretty well and know where they're going. It's the ones that don't where you don't, you know, that you really have to worry about actually. So from the first few pages of each one, I kind of got a sense of them. And sadly, they all kind of get beaten up pretty, pretty badly in the, in the book. Um, but yeah. I know you uh, interviewed a lot of authors over the years um, for your various editorial jobs. But uh, have any of your idol uh, or, or people you've interviewed read the book? And, uh, 
Um, I did. I did send to a few who who wrote back very nice letters. Though I don't, they never got specific, so I'm not, <laughs> not quite sure how much they they read. Um, for interview, very kindly, Jay McInerney interviewed me for for one, so he did read the book. I can I can I asked him. <laughs> uh, but uh, so that was very sweet. But yeah, some it's it's funny. It's it's very weird to be. I feel like uh, as a professional question ask ask asker, I'm. It's a completely different thing to be on the other side of it, and you know. Now I realize, you know what I, you know what you can do to people, and, and it's, it's very hard to answer questions. So, um, but yes, I don't know. That's it's it's funny. You just hope they have, I guess. Does anyone else have any questions? All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.